This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. Spring is here, and that means it's time to put away the long sleeves and pants and bring out the shorts and tees. We're diehard fans of apparel from Rabbit, especially their easy tees and singlets. They're simply so soft and durable, a real staple of our team's daily running. This year, we've also been enjoying Running Warehouse's growing line of sustainable apparel. The Adidas Own the Run collection is both light on the run and on the wallet, perfect for new runners looking to build their running wardrobe. For even bolder colors, John G's Run Terra collection offers an ultra soft tee with a variety of super colorful options to help celebrate the season. Head over to runningwarehouse.com today to catch all the spring action. Also take a look at our podcast description for some of the team's favorite running apparel and must-haves, like the team favorite Ultra Soft Rabbit Easy Tea, or Chief Editor Matt Klein's daily post-run ritual, a scoop of scratch coffee-flavored recovery mix. Hey everyone, welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, talk about the art and the science of the things that we put on our feet. Today, I have Dr. Salas with me, and the two of us are going to go through a great mailbag episode. We've got some really, really good questions that I'm very excited to jump into. We've had people that sent some great questions on Instagram. We've added a couple email questions. So this should be a good, good episode, and we'll see where this goes. First off, Dr. Salas, how's it going? I feel like I haven't seen, I've got to be, been on the same podcast at the same time for a little bit. So how are you? Yeah, I know. I got a couple of weeks off there. That never happens. I was <laughs> literally every week for the listeners, I'm like messaging them the morning of like, am I on tonight? And they're like, actually, you're off. And it's like, oh, all right. I'll do something with my Sunday night. Um, well, right. not that I don't with the podcast. That's obviously a thing we do. But um I'm doing well, a little bit tired. You know, we're gearing up for a race here coming up in June 11th. It's currently recording date right now is May 14th. So we're coming up on a little less than a month out from the race. So mileage is pretty high. Workouts are pretty intense. I'm tired all the time, you know, but it's, uh, <laughs> it'll be turning around soon, you know, and, um, I'll be getting married in a couple months as well. So we've got, you know, wedding planning, running full-time work schedule, all the other stuff. So a little bit tired at the moment, but I'm doing well. Super excited if you're in Amber's wedding, by the way, this could be fun, especially in Santa Barbara. It's going to be great. Uh, yeah. for listeners, what, uh, do you <laughs> mind telling what race that you're doing, uh, next month? Yeah. So it's a relatively new race actually. So it's going to be the Long Beach classic, uh, Long Beach, California, not New York. Uh, it's going to be, uh, a half marathon. So Long Beach classic half marathon. Um, if you guys are in the area, please come by, like say hi, whatever you want to do. We can talk and hang out and they got a little wine festival after the race. I imagine I'll probably be at that for a little bit. Um, but now the most important <laughs> question, you got to give the people what they want. Wait, are you, have you finalized shoe cho- racing shoe choice? You're still up in the air. How's that going? You know, I think I've picked it. I think I've picked it. You think, are you willing to share it? You're going to keep that a secret for racing. I day? can share it. I've got two right. shoes in mind, but I'm leaning towards one. And right now it's Vaporfly and X percent three. So they made a couple of those small changes that won't be in this episode, but I mean, I did do a head to head. And for those that want to go watch that video, they can, uh, between the Vaporfly next percent three and next percent two, uh, that shoe, they cleaned up a couple of little things that make the shoe work much better for me now than the previous version did. With that said though, this course does have a couple of like hard turns, like some pretty, like there's like one full 180 pin turn there. And then a couple like cul-de-sac like turns, you know, where it's a little bit wider, 
Um, I think it'll be doable. I think it should be fine. But the other shoe that I had in mind was actually the Adidas Takumi Sen 9. Ah. And that was a shoe. I've had some pretty awesome workouts in that shoe as well. And um, on road as well. And one of them was 14 miles. So it's like... That's sweet. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. It's like, I know I can take that shoe half marathon and it corners much better. You know, it's, I mean, yeah, granted it's meant yeah. to do that, but... That's fair. Yeah. Um, Dude, I want to see... Think, all, yeah, keep going. Yeah, I just, I think for 13 miles though, I think I will probably do better in the Vaporfly. I don't know. Like it's... They're both the right answer. You know, there's no wrong answer yeah. to that, but I think... Now, if you had the if you had the Takumi Sen Strung version, would that change I mean, your opinion at all? If it was a little bit lighter, maybe. Is the, yeah. is the Strung upper lighter than the Mesh? I, I have no idea. For listeners, we just got saw some photos. We don't have them, but we saw some photos of there's a Takumi Sen Strung apparently out there somewhere. Not sure if it's going to come to market. So I'd assume it would be a little bit lighter, but... Yeah. Hey, and I have no also idea. a little partial to Vaporfly right now too because I mean, yeah. I, did you see that twenty-one mile long run? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that yeah. was nasty. Check out his Strava, by the way. We all we all have Stravas, but David, mine's boring. The, David's is the one most fun to watch and see the monster workouts. That was nasty. That was like twelve miles at like five forty-three average, and then it was like a mile easy, and then four miles. I think the average of the four miles was five twelve, but my last mile was five oh seven. And that fourth mile was mile 20. You know, it was like a mile cool down yeah. <laughs> back right. to the car. So for those of you who don't know, mile. if you're racing at, at uh, the Long Beach Classic, David's in good shape. So watch out. So this is good. So it sounds like good luck at the race. I'm sure I'll say that a million times before you actually do it. But for those in the area, again, if you if you are there, say hi. He'll be up obviously up at the front. This is going to be a great race because David's doing really, really well. I'm very excited for you. We are going to dive into the questions here, and David and I are going to take turns reading off the questions. So one person will read it, the other person will start the answer, and then vice versa. We're going to go back and forth. So, David, do you want the honors of starting since I did the intro? Yeah, yeah. I could take the first question. Not a problem at all. Sweet. I'll be taking this off of the Instagram list. So this is coming from run.mf. Don't ask me what MF stands for. That could stand for a lot of things. And one thing in particular that I can think of really quickly, but (laughs) (laughs) run.mf, his question is, what are good, stable, neutral, or him, her, they, I, their question is, I have no idea what, yeah, they, their question is, what are good, stable, neutral shoes for venturing out of traditional stability for the first time? I feel like this is a good question for me as someone who talks about, you know, stable, neutral and stuff like that. So the shoes that I can think of off the top of my head right now, probably some of the best ones out there, uh, the Saucony Ride 16 is really solid. It's got real. It's a lighter shoe. It's great. I knew Dave was going to like that answer. Um, very good sidewalls. I actually prefer it and find it more stable personally than the Guide. Not in like a stability standpoint. I just like the way the shoe is set up for me. So really good sidewalls, really stable side to side. It's a really good shoe to kind of try that first. And it's lighter, so it tends to feel a little bit better. Um, Saucony's done a really good job with a lot of their shoes. The Shift, any of the Shift series is also really good. The only thing you got to be careful with with the Shift, especially the third one, a little firmer and a, feels like a little bit lower drop to me. I think that's because the, the the rocker feels a little bit more aggressive. But any of the, sh- the endorphin shift is going to be a great thing because, again, sidewalls, wider base, stiffness in the right spot. They even I think they called that shoe a stable neutral category, right? 
or they used some other term that was like basically like it was like structured cushioning structured cushioning that's what it was that was it yeah. yeah so the endorphin series is really really good um another really really good option from new balance that i've really enjoyed and then i gave this to one of my students ryan who i'm gonna give a shout out to at apu um the new balance fresh foam more v4 is also surprisingly stable the sidewalls are really high but it's not aggressive but you're going to still feel really really grounded the other one that i can think of off the top of my head what was the last one um there's a ton of them i think the nimbus light 3 might also be a really really good one if you're sensitive to sidewalls just because it's got a wide platform um, you got to be a little careful because there's a little bit of posterior flare, so you might hit a little bit early. But just the way the geometry of that shoe is set up, it's it's fairly good. It'd probably be the least stable of the ones I just mentioned, but still stable neutral. So I would really encourage you, and if you want to learn, look at more of this stuff, definitely head over to our stability guide. And there's we have a ton of extra stable neutral shoes that you might also be able to look at. David, is there any other ones that I, I missed? I'm assuming this is asking about training shoes. Um but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with the entire list that you provided. I do have one that I would add that I've actually been really loving as of late, and it should be out. I'm pretty sure it's out, is the Topo Phantom 3. And good sidewalls, wide base, checks, you know, sole flaring, gently rockered. It kind of checks all those boxes that those other shoes do as well. And that's another training shoe that I've been like pounding miles since since I've gotten the shoe. I mean, it's we barely got it. So, I mean, I think I only have like 50 in it. But like for the amount of short period of time that I've had it, like that's quite a bit of miles to put into a shoe. That's a good addition. That's good. All right, we're going to go to our next question, which this is a, this is perfect. This is a great question for David since you spend a lot more time on tracks than I do. So this is from Sandlander, which, and the question is, which shoes are best suited for treadmills or soft running tracks? Yeah, that's such a wild question, right? Because treadmills and tracks are so different. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I think I'll start with the treadmill. The treadmill is very interesting, right? We're talking about a very firm surface that you're landing underneath you. Does it have some bounce? Yes. Treadmills also vary widely in the experience you're going to have underfoot, whether or not it's like something really firm I mean, I'm going to assume it's not something that has a force plate under it that makes it extra stiff on purpose. I'm just going to assume that for this question. Really quickly, off topic, when I was talking to Dustin Jubert about this, um, he when you do research on treadmills, I had no idea. You actually have to standardize the stiffness of the treadmill because that stiffness will impact your running mechanics. And it's part of actually a standard question research to go – which I was always I my my the lab at APU we don't have a treadmill you just got to run across a for several force plates which is annoying to do repeatedly um, but it works but I ne- don't have to worry about standardizing a treadmill so it's yeah that would things. be so now I don't complain a as much. nightmare yeah. from an so, objective standpoint yes yeah so yeah all kudos to you topic, man but like <laughs> to to Dustin but um. They're so different, but I think there's one thing they do have in common and they all have a belt and they all have a motor and the thing turns. With that said, you probably have heard a lot of people recommend that you run on a treadmill with a slight incline versus it being very flat. And one of the reasons why is because it that belt's turning and it kind of pulls your leg back a little bit quicker. So you might have a larger hip extension moment or maybe your stride opens up a little bit more than it normally would. Um, so 
I wouldn't necessarily have a shoe that I would say is best suited for a treadmill, but I would say that I would be hesitant if you're not accustomed to running in treadmills very often, something that is already really highly rockered that rocks you forward and kind of quickens that transition point already because now you're going to have it double downed. And so you're going to be rolling forward very quick and your hips going to be moving back behind you extra quick. And if you have like hip flexor soreness or even a hamstring soreness after being on the treadmill, sometimes your foot's just lifting a little bit earlier than it normally does because it's going back behind it quicker than it normally does. And so there's just some small adjustments that over the course of, let's just say four miles, you do a four mile treadmill run. How many steps are you doing, you know, over the course of four miles repeatedly the exact same way on a very fixed platform? And I would just be hesitant to do those types of shoes. There's nothing wrong necessarily with wearing them on those surfaces. It's just a matter of how comfortable you are running on a treadmill period, because there are some people out there that let's say they're running, you know, anywhere between this is a big range, but let's say they're running between 30 and 80 miles a week. Like you're getting some consistent mileage in if you're doing that and you're someone that's running relatively consistently. If that's all outdoors and let's say you're on vacation and you go on a treadmill and your hamstring barks at you, that might just be because you're on a treadmill. You know, that that's <laughs> regardless of what shoe you're wearing. But I would say that if we're looking at the treadmill consideration to just be a little bit mindful of probably not wearing something overly rockered and fast transitioning. That doesn't necessarily mean go for a super flat, low profile shoe. I don't know if I necessarily would say that either because you're also on a harder surface and you're probably normally running on as well, but just something balanced that you trust that you feel like your footing is pretty decent. I wouldn't rock the boat too hard on that one. For the soft running tracks, I would like to know what you mean by soft. You know, I mean, are we talking traditional multi-surface, I mean, multi-weather track versus a Mondo track or versus, like, I don't know how specific we are with this question, but I'll just assume that this is an all-weather track. Uh, one of the things that I look for when I'm running on a track is something that I feel relatively grounded in. Uh, if I already feel like I'm a little bit wobbly or it's a high platform, especially on a track when I'm trying to run fast, it's hard to corner and I will get ankle pain. I will get like, you know, whether it's tib post or fibular soreness or even like lateral knee from the hamstring, I'll get that every once in a while from all the left turns, especially my left side. And if it's something where I'm like having to really kind of lean into the track on, uh, I would opt for something a little bit lower. And there's some good options out there now, you know, for a while there was an absence of these shoes, you know, where like they were the only thing that was out for a while. And then it completely went away for a while when the super shoes came out. But one that I'm actually really liking right now is ironically, it's about to be coming out is the Saucony Sinister, you know, the low profile, um, racing flat there. So you have a new generation midsole in there. There's no plate. It's relatively flexible. It's lower to the ground. There's some slight sole flaring. The lockdown is very good. It's like a track spike, that's a shoe that you can easily turn over on the track in. Another option would be like the Topo Cyclone 2, lower to the ground, bouncy midsole. I feel grounded and I feel bouncy and I feel peppy. Like that's a great shoe. It's one of the, my go-tos for track workouts. Another one would be like the Adidas Takumi Sen, you know, something where you just feel comfortable cornering and running fast. 
And if you're running slower and it's a more controlled pace, that doesn't really seem to matter as much because um, you're not taking those turns as hard. Like, yes, it will add up eventually. I don't know how many miles you're doing on the track or how many laps you're doing. But I would say if you're looking at a track workout where you're really trying to turn over, make sure it's something you feel comfortable cornering. And that's probably the biggest thing I could add to that is just it really doesn't even matter to the shoe to some degree. It's just how comfortable do you feel taking hard turns in that shoe? And if you are feeling a little bit dicey about taking one, it's probably not going to feel great on the track. I think those are great answers. Um, there is the Saucony Sinister is one of the examples of some of the newer, still lower stack shoes that are coming out. Um, we just put out a review of the Puma Liberate Nitro Two, which I did not like on the road. Uh, it does a lot better on the track because it's so much f- closer to the ground and the cush- soft cushioning bottoms out. So that's another possible one if you can lock down that heel and it doesn't rip your heel to shreds like mine. The Asics Hyperspeed 2, which is a lower stack one, is another solid option. It's super affordable, too. It's like 60 bucks in various places. But again, Dave, that's a perfect answer. It's going to depend on you, right? Like, can you handle something that's a little more wobbly if it's taller, right? Which I personally don't like either. And then Dave and I are similar that I, I like something a little bit more flexible if I'm on the track. A little It just allows me to turn over a little bit quicker, but... That was a great answer. Yeah, and Expert. like there's people, yeah. you know, that they can go rip 5Ks on the track. I'm going to give a shout-out to D- Dylan Jacobs right now over at Tennessee. That guy is killing it in vapor flies with the 5K and 10K distances. That would I couldn't do it. I, I just, I can't. Yeah, I don't think it could. I don't know. Like, my foot hurts, man. Like, when I'm, like, cornering that hard <laughs> in vapor flies. Like, it's not like I can't run the paces I'm being asked of myself, but, like, they just don't feel as comfortable. Yeah. Like you're not going to yeah. see me wearing a Vaporfly for a track 5K. It just isn't for me. But for other people, it's fine. So, no. yeah. There, there's a great question coming later that I think will build upon this. But, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Right. So next. I guess it's my turn now. So yeah. yes, taking a look at this one, the next question is from J.Cortman. And their question is, what should I look for? In a shoe after a bad lateral ankle sprain. So first off, I'm going to clarify that we don't know where you are so that what we're about ready to say does not count as medical advice. This is just general. Um, if this is a really bad ankle sprain, please. if it's really bad and not healing well, please go get this checked out by your local medical professional. Um, the thing after a lateral ankle sprain, right, and how intense it is, if you've got swelling, stuff like that is going to vary with this. But you have sprained, if it's really bad, potentially torn, hopefully not ruptured, some of the ligaments on the outside of your ankle. The other thing that's very, very common to get irritated people don't pay attention to is you can irritate any one of the muscles right there, the the peroneal muscles, or I guess we call them fibular muscles now. You can get a stretch injury of the fibular nerve that's right there and also can irritate that lateral joint right there and the lateral aspect of the um, talocrural joint and where that distal fibula is i know that's not answer the question but just giving some background so when you when you're in the acute phase and you have just injured this one of the things you want to do is you are protecting this you want to maintain whatever motion you can that's relatively comfortable but you want to protect that stuff and so one of the big things for protecting it is having a shoe 
A kind of stable neutral shoe is really, really good It'd be just because you're going to want something that has a little bit more lateral flair there. Medial is also good, but it's kind of both to keep you centered. You don't want your ankle rolling out that direction. A shoe with lateral flair is going to help resist that a little bit. What's probably more important is making sure the shoe is rockered because when you're moving through ankle motion during gait, you it normally you're going to need to use that, right? You're going to need all those joints. The ligaments still get a little stretch even when you're walking front to back. So having a rockered shoe is probably something that's also going to really help you. Long term, you do not want to keep utilizing the rocker shoe. The rocker shoe is great, right? It's like after you fracture something or you sprain your ankle, it's very common that people you get put in a boot, right? If you go to a medical professional or a medical center, you do not want to wear that for longer than you need to, right? Because if you do, a lot of stuff can get stiff. You want to actually start moving it and making sure that things don't get overly stiff, go the other way, or things get overly weak. I see a lot of people that never rehabbed from a lateral ankle sprain, and then that turns into that repeated lateral ankle sprain, lateral like ankle instability. So while I am, I know you're only asking about the shoes, so rocker shoes that have some definitely lateral sole flare might be really good to protect that, assuming that's comfortable for you. But again, go with the th- realizing having a variety of shoes can be really, really helpful. So as soon as you start healing, it's really good to either see a medical professional, look up some stuff to go, hey, how do I get my mobility back? Work on stuff with like single leg balance, eyes closed, get your proprioception back. Um, that was a much longer answer than probably they wanted. I think it was fine. I do yeah. have one thing I'd add like though, because yeah. I think all of the conditions that you said are are great, but I think it also implies that they're running on a flat road with minimal turns yeah. and things like that. Um, I know some people anecdotally that they actually avoid the exact profile that we just described, yeah. mainly because they're on trails and unstable surfaces a lot. And they find that the flare actually causes them to hit a little bit earlier. And then yeah. they feel like they're going to roll again. And so I think it if you're on a road surface and something that's predictable, I think Everything that Klein just said is is very applicable. Um, but I think at the same time, there's an importance that also comes with feeling grounded because, or just not, not even grounded, but just feeling supported from the shoe that's underneath you. Because a lot of these shoes that are rockered and have these sidewalls are also high stack shoes and highly cushioned. And if you feel like your ankle's doing a lot of this, for the listeners, I'm shaking my hand like it feels like you're like the muscles. So your peroneus longus or fibularis longus that's on the outside of your lower leg that goes underneath the foot and heel there. And your tibialis posterior on the inside goes down. They almost act like little stirrups to keep your foot and ankle from doing anything funny when you're landing that can actually exacerbate symptoms sometimes. So I think so firmer shoe definitely. Yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. I think it, some of it is a little bit dependent on the surfaces you're running on. Um, but I, I think all of those things though are still, all the things that you mentioned are definitely applicable. I think it's a case by case type situation. And I think when you're, if you are in that position and you're looking at what shoes am I going to run in? I think if your gut feeling trusts a certain shoe more, just go with that gut feeling. Like if you're like, like that's the shoe that's going to work for me. When I put that on, I feel better about running in this shoe right now. And I don't feel like the, uh, it's dicey for X, Y, Z. I say, go for it. 
Um, yeah. I would add, by the way, as someone who is – this is super hypocritical for what I'm about to say. Um, make sure if you are if you are injured severely enough, you need to ask yourself, should you be running? Right. Now, I'm the kind of person who will try to run through anything. That's not necessarily a good thing. So ask yourself, are you using the shoe to put a band-aid on when that stuff really needs to heal? Or is it good enough that you can keep moving? We obviously want you to keep moving, but make sure you ask it. I'm not trying to scare you away from just ask that question. Is this really good? As someone who fractured their toe earlier this year and, and took a week off, thank goodness, and then kind of started trying to come back quicker than I maybe should have. And so we'll see what the consequences, long-term consequences of that are. But yeah, not saying good or bad. Just make sure you're not using the shoe as a crutch, so to speak, and make sure the tissue has time to heal. All right. That was a good one. So we have, I don't know how to say this. Oh, uh, Mikkel, not Miguel, Mikkel VP about rotations. How many types of shoes are necessary in quotation, knowing some, or parentheses, knowing some shoes cover a few types. So yeah, how many for, I'm going to say for your average runner, and we've talked about this extensively that having a couple pair of running shoes is one of the few things that it can actually reduce your risk of running injury, strength training being another one. Um, people are going, okay, well, how many, like what types do I need? So David, as, as one of the very, the guys who can just seem like you like, oh, I can take the Kinvara and then I can take the endorphin elite or I can take the whatever for a 20 mile run. What what do you think? What types of shoes do you think are necessary for the average run? Yeah, I, I took the Cloud Go for a lovely eighteen this morning. Yeah, uh, I think from a rotation standpoint, it does depend on the runner. I think I would say at least two, ideally three. When we're looking at the two mindset, so you're going to have a shoe that you do all your daily training runs in, something that you like, predictable, doesn't rock the boat doesn't get you injured it's your old reliable and then if i'm assuming this person is going to be running a race at some point have a shoe that's a little bit lighter that's kind of a more race friendly profile that i in theory you're going to probably be racing in uh if you're only having a two shoe rotation you know and so maybe you have a a daily training shoe and you have a go fast shoe um if you have a three shoe rotation it's kind of nice to have one that you have the daily trainer, you have your old reliable, you have your race day shoe, and then you have something in the middle there, usually a lightweight trainer that you can do workouts in and kind of still get a fast stimulus in without beating your legs up too much. Um, the muddy, the water has certainly gotten muddied with these super shoes because now these shoes are much more resilient as far as your body afterwards. But in the past, these flats would just wreck people so like shoes like the adidas boston like like that shoe shined you know like a lightweight trainer would be like oh perfect i can go hit my fast long run in this i can go hit xyz and i can still feel okay even knowing i'm gonna race in a different shoe now that the super shoes and everything are out it, it definitely changes the game a little bit from that standpoint but i think there's still some merit in having a three shoe rotation and having some lighter weight trainers that are nice to turn over in. And um, plus it just saves miles off of your special shoes, right? Like those are expensive. So um, it's almost cheaper in the long run to have a shoe in the middle and then save the other one for a couple special efforts. But I would say ideally three. I think that's a great a great word of wisdom. I think back in the day before Doctors Running and before, for those of you watching on YouTube before, we were lucky enough to have the huge swath of shoes 
behind us, if you can see in the videos that we both do, uh, they're very fortunate. Um, I usually had a two or three shoe rotation as I kind of learned more. It was definitely three where I had my daily training and long run shoe. I had that light rate trainer for something like if I was going to do a long run, I want to go up tempo. And then I had my race and workout shoe, which the lightweight trainer would also function for. And that, that obviously is assuming that you're wanting to run faster. I think even if you are not looking at speed, having a second shoe that's just a little lighter or just a little bit more different can be a little different, sorry, a little more different, um, a little different can be helpful just to expose your body to some different things. And I would encourage you to start thinking about, yeah, I know there's some people who love doing the same run every single day. From a tissue resilient standpoint, I'd really encourage you to think not just about some different shoes, but also if you're someone who does the same thing every day, think about just changing it up just a little bit, even if it's a change of pace, even if it's just a little bit to give you some variety, because the whole thing, my assumption talking to Laurent Maslow, who's the researcher who did the research on the stuff with the multiple shoes is variety is good. It's kind of like cross training, except you're still running. So I'm actually going to ask you the next question because the one after that, I really, really want to take. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to cheat here a little bit um, from little, I'm going to struggle little and Miyamo. Why do some running shoes give me hot spots and, or a tingling sensation in my feet? What do you think? Yeah, that could be a lot of things, right? Like, obviously, if if we're having some hot spots or some tingling sensations, something's getting irritated. Hot spots, usually rubbing, maybe it's too tight, maybe it's too short. I don't know where the hot spot is, right? But like, something is getting irritated, whether it's the fabric or the foot rubbing on the shoe, laces are biting down too tight, maybe there's not enough padding on the tongue, maybe you're just tying it really tight, I don't know. But like basically a hotspot usually is something that is having some abrasion where things are rubbing. It's creating a hotspot. You know, friction creates heat. Um, If that happens in all of your shoes, I would probably look into a shoe. I don't know. I would try something different. Try on a few different things. Maybe you should have a wide shoe. And you're running in a bunch of normal width shoes and you're getting abrasion for that reason. I, it's hard to say. Um, but as far as hotspot goes, that's usually a, a place of abrasion. Things are rubbing, right? It's kind of like chafing in other areas where you get irritation or whatever. Um, when we look at tingling sensations in the feet, usually these shoes are too tight. Usually some of the muscle or the nerves that come superficially on the foot, whether it's on the top or the bottom, whether your sensory nerves, like something's getting pressed and it's letting your foot know. That's why things are going tingly. They're going numb. They're not operating like they should. So in that situation, I would loosen the laces if the shoe isn't working for you. Like let's say you're getting heel slippage. It's not moving around. Maybe the sizing is not correct. If the sizing is correct and there's no issues with that, then maybe you just need to find another shoe, something that's a little bit better padded. There's, there's a lot of different things that can cause that, but some, both of the things that we just discussed there, as far as hotspots and tingling sensations, those are kind of like warning signs that something's not right. Your body's trying to tell you that it's not liking this shoe and and who knows so like this could even be maybe the shoe isn't the problem maybe the socks are a little too thick and creating that hot spot or something like that as well like there's multiple factors that could be going into this but 
usually um, it's a place of abrasion or pressure. And so if you can find a way to alleviate some of that abrasion and pressure, that usually will make things a little bit better. If you do all the modifiable factors that you can and it's still happening, I would find something else. Like I, it's not worth it to me to have that going on repeatedly, you know, all the time <laughs> for the sake of a time or a training cycle or something like that. Like go find something better. Like it's not to say the shoe's a bad and shoe, but yeah. We've had this happen multiple times where we'll get sent something or we buy something and you're like, or usually it's if we buy something, we're going to send it back. But if it's sent to us, we're just like, oh, like, do I suck this up and let my feet get wrecked or do I go, hey, I can't do this. And that's the great thing about having multiple reviewers. Sometimes you'll be like, hey, David, can you take this? I can't. I can't do this. But that, that hit the nail on the head. I would say the only two things I would add on that is that um, fit is also something fit and how the shoe creases can also make an impact. So if the shoe is, if it's flex point is not matching up with your foot, you can get excessive pressure from the upper or creasing or sliding inside the shoe. And David mentions, make sure you got the right socks, make sure the shoe's locking down your feet really well. But there's some shoes that are just not going to match your mechanics. And that might show up as either discomfort. It might also show up as, hey, rubbing in the wrong spot. So if you can't fix it, it may be, hey, this shoe's just not going to work for me unless you want to wait long enough for a callus to form and even then you're i don't know if that's that's worth it the other thing i would say on nerves any tingling sensation is usually nerve and i will tell you that tingling is not usually normal if this is nerve there are three nerves need three things they need blood space and movement if you take any one of those three things away usually movement is the one that gets or sorry space is the one that gets taken away you're going to start getting some tingling because those the nerves need blood flow. They need adequate room to move. So they'll kind of start complaining. This is hopefully it's not a, a vascular like artery issue. So, yeah, you need either need to go, hey, is the shoe pinching in the wrong spot? Do you have enough room? And as David mentioned, you might need a wide or this, again, just might not be a shoe that works with your mechanics and your anatomy. Agreed. All right. Next question here. I know Klein is itching to answer this one. So this one's from Eckferson87. Question is, and this is not entirely correct grammar, so I don't know if this is the question or if this is don't don't judge. This is Bach yeah. putting something in, but yeah, training during pregnancy include workouts or should all runs be zone two? So I I really want to jump into this on on this for a couple reasons. A one, I hope I'm not mansplaining this, but my wife is six months pregnant uh, pregnant as of this video um she we're expecting a little girl so we're super excited it's been a little challenging for because for those who don't know my wife is a professional runner so she is sponsored professionally by salomon she has placed uh in the top three nationally for several ultra marathons including the u.s 100k champs and was second at the u.s 50k champs a few years ago ran an olympic marathon trail she is used to doing Lots of mileage running very, very fast. So pregnancy, one of the things you have to realize is things are going to change and everybody is going to be different. The biggest thing is don't do anything new or more intense than what you did before you were pregnant, right? So um, David has a great little note in here. It said Alyssa Montagna was 34 weeks, almost eight months pregnant when she ran the 800 in the 2014 US Championships. Some people are going to be able to do that. 
other people are not. So when it comes to specific workouts and training, you kind of have to see what you're going to do and also be open to the fact that your body is going to change. My wife doesn't like that. She, We ran a 5K a couple weeks ago and she told herself she wasn't going to be competitive and one girl passed her and she, all bets were off and she ran and beat the girl and then had a pelvic pain for like four days afterwards. It was like, yeah, you, you overdid it. I mean, you know, I'm not judging. I would do the same thing. But, you know, you have to kind of modify. So she had to take a few days off and just walk instead of run. And that's how it goes. And so now she's doing a walk run and she kind of pays attention to how her body responds. So walk runs are great. If you can run while you're pregnant, awesome. There's a couple signs you need to pay attention to. And uh, if those any PTs are interested in taking the sports clinical specialist exam, you better know this, by the way, because it uh, is definitely something talked about in many of the courses that I've taken. And I will not confirm or deny if that showed up on the sports exam because you can't talk about that. But I would definitely study if I were you. Um, the evidence suggests that, again, you can continue moving, but there's a couple warning signs. So if you start getting really nauseous, if you start getting really, really lightheaded, any kind of more systemic signs, any kind of, as Dave mentioned, any kind of like cardiac stuff, any heart flutter, stuff like that, then you got to reassess and potentially change your activity. So if you can, if it's a one-time thing, you should be very cautious, but if it certainly keeps happening, you're going to need to kind of back off from running in more intense stuff and try other avenues. If you're able to do it, great, right? One of the things, if you can run, great. You need to pay attention to those things, though, and pace needs to be relative. It needs to be much more effort-based than it does need to be, what's my time? Because your body mechanics are changing, your center of mass is changing. So the workouts that we've really enjoyed have been intervals, like 30 seconds on, a little bit longer off, right? Just kind of getting the legs turning over, but not so intense. You're like busting your lungs, but just getting a little harder effort in there and then giving yourself a little longer recovery. So making sure you've got this probably double, if not a little longer recovery, just to make sure your heart and everything can calm down. Um, being able to do some like hill running can be really helpful, not necessarily hill repeats, but doing an uphill grade can be really, really helpful just to get your heart rate up if you're struggling to run fast enough to do that as long as things stay comfortable. But whether all runs should be in zone two, Again, it's going to depend on you. There are people that can run into the last week of their pregnancy, and there are people that within a month or two, they can't handle it just from the nausea and, and cardiac issues and other issues that come about. So at the end of the day, you need to pay attention to your body and you need to be ready for things to change. It's been very challenging for my wife, but she's a trooper and a warrior, so she's been very flexible even though it's frustrating for her. But at the end of the day, it, it you'll you'll get through this, right? You'll You'll – Hopefully, you know, give birth, you'll have this beautiful child, and you'll be able to ease back into things. But while you're pregnant, just watch for any systemic or cardinal signs. If you're good, keep working at it. Intervals, especially shorter intervals with longer efforts, longer recovery can be really, really good. But again, each person is totally different. For anybody listening that's interested in doing research on this, please do it. I'm forgetting their na- the individual's name, but there's a great um, – Con Ed course at the CSAC Combined Sections meeting last year in San Diego or this year um, in San Diego was really good, but we really don't know a lot about training, running, and especially elite runners um, for in with pregnancy, right? You see a lot of stuff on Instagram. I promise you most of that stuff on Instagram isn't always true. So don't look at that. Look at yourself and kind of you know, play it by ear as you keep going. Yeah, I agree completely. The only things that I'd really add to that is looking at, I mean, any kind of systemic issue. I think that's great. I think Mm -hmm. the only thing that we missed is any kind of excessive, like shortness of breath. 
or yeah. anything. Usually things that you would already know is wrong, regardless right. of whether or not you are pregnant. And if those things are happening, I would not write it off as you just being pregnant. No. Um, nope, if you've nope, got nope, a feeling that. that something's off, something like, please go get that looked yeah. at. The last thing you want to do is jeopardize the safety of you right. or your baby. Uh, this is not something you just push through, which a lot of runners will do, but yeah, systemic shortness of breath, lightheadedness, chest pain, and angina, any of that stuff at that, uh, but you will be able to get back to running afterwards. You just might have to have some patience as to how long you can do that. Yeah. And I agree as well. The other thing is the recovery time you're recovering for two of y'all, not just one. So (laughs) yeah, like it's okay to take a little bit of time. Like, <laughs> right. That's fine. You're going to have some pelvic pain. There's a lot of stuff they don't talk. People don't talk about in terms of what you go through during childbirth. And it can take a little bit to come back. So just be patient. You will get back, but it's better to take your time because you got to recondition a lot of stuff, right? When a baby comes out, a lot of anatomy changes, right? So don't just look at all the elite runners you see on Instagram. Who are like, Oh, I get back to running workouts on one week. I'm like, I don't know if that you know was who's good. Killing it you right know, now. Postpartum was it? Uh, Genevieve. Ah, uh, uh, she's um, her handle's Jen Jen Lacaze. What is? She's married to the American guy. Oh shoot, I'm blanking on the name. They're both Puma athletes, but anyways, killing it. Just had a kid, and she's running very fast for having, just having a kid. That's one benefit postpartum, though, is that you do have all this extra hormones and all this extra blood flow and all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a performance enhancement. But I would still encourage you, take your time, pay attention, pay attention to pain, especially pelvic pain, pay attention to like leaking bladder, stuff like that, which is fairly normal after you give birth. But like if that continues, please go get that looked at. Go see a good pelvic floor PT. They do really awesome stuff. All right. On to the next stuff. So we have running on endorphins. Which they have a great question is what would you like to see in running shoes in five years time and what would you not like to see? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a hot take on here. All right. What I would not like to see is con this is gonna this is double edged sword here, but is the constant drive for innovation and new materials. I don't wanna see that. Huh. Okay. And here's why. Here's why. Because everyone's on a race for what's the next best thing, and they create this product, and maybe it's bouncy, maybe it's fast, but they're missing components. Then they spend the next two, three years trying to clean up components, right? And I get that these companies are operating in these two, three-year cycles. They're trying to consistently push boundaries. But if there's one thing that the Vaporfly 3 showed me between the Vaporfly 2 is that you can play with the same ingredients and make a better experience. I want them to take a look, and this is what I want to see, is look at those little components. What creates a better experience? And maybe you can play with the same materials or slightly new ones, but like have a similar but improved experience on the shoe and something that is a little bit whether it's more stable, whether it's cleaned up transitions, whether it's just a little bit more comfortable on the foot, just in general, you know, I'm okay if the process takes a little bit longer, but I want, like, I would rather the product of the shoe be good and all of the little things being dialed in than have it be rushed for the sake of a material race. So I know that the super shoes and I know that all the new technology, I know that's all the the rage right now. And everyone's like, give me something new, but I actually don't want that. 
And I feel like we've gotten so much new in the last few years. Like, let's just clean up the little things. Let's make a really freaking good shoe in the next three to five years. And then you can go and update it, right? Like, but I would rather you focus on making a nice, balanced, just awesome shoe than just having the next thing on the shelf. I think that's a good comment. I, f- I think you, you kind of hit that on the head because I think the end of people are innovating so quickly that they're not actually going back and working on the product. And I can say there's some really good shoes out there right now, but there's also some other companies that have stuff out there that has a lot of potential, but it's not where it needs to be. It can get there, but you need to just, they need to refine and learn what does work and what doesn't. There's a lot of shoes out there. I'm like, you guys should know better than this. By now, and we hammer on geometry, foam placement, plate, plate, all this kind of stuff. And it's like the materials are out there. It'd be great to see if you can refine this and figure out how do we make this better first before we try something totally new. Because if you don't refine your technique first and you dump it and move on, you're never going to get the good lessons of that actually work on it. So I think it's a great response. That's really, really good. All right. Moving on to the next question. I had to reread this name three times because it's three words and not one, but it's all in one. Dave in Kits asked, if you four foot strike in super shoes, do you get the full energy from the heel? I'm going to say this depends on how exactly you're striking. And it also depends on if you're an actual four foot striker, because most people are really bad at actually telling what they do. Um, that being said, if you are a true four foot striker, you know, it depends on are you the one, are you more midfoot, right? If you still get some compression here, but if you're really far on the forefoot, the answer is no, right? Because you're going to be loading the, the forefoot, especially with most of your force and the heel, you might get a little bit, but you're also, you're landing up front and then you're pushing off up front. So the answer is probably not, which is kind of problematic for some of these shoes. I think they're, David, please correct me and the listeners and viewers, please correct me if I'm wrong. I thought there was some research that heel strikers actually tend to benefit more from some of these shoes. I'm sure it depends. It depends on the model. I forget where i read that i don't remember if i read that as a research article or if that was just somebody posting about that but i can tell you anecdotally that i get a lot more out of the vaporfly when i hit the heel than when i hit the forefoot it feels better and more stable to me when i'm up my forefoot but that foam and that max stack if you can compress that and bounce it you get a little bit more out of those foams you're gonna you're gonna load them a lot more up front that said there are some super shoes that I think might be better for forefoot strikers. I think the Metaspeed Sky Plus is a great example of this. It's one something thing that for me getting up there feels really good and the heel actually doesn't feel as hot. Um, we Newton is also a great shoe company and they have a super shoe coming out. What what happened with that? I, I remember seeing photos of that. I really want I still want to try that. But Newton has some great shoes that even though they're not max stack height, they almost feel like got the propulsiveness of some of these shoes. So yeah, to answer your question, you're probably not going to get a lot of the benefits um, of smashing that heel down and compressing that foam. It also depends on is the foam actually resilient enough and can utilize that. So I wouldn't panic, honestly, and go, am I using every bit of the shoe? I just ask yourself, hey, what's where where I land? How does it feel good? Do I feel fast in it? And am I do I feel like I can use it? If you feel like you can use it, honestly, I'd say don't worry about it. I agree completely. I think I don't want to discredit the question in any way, but like when I read that question, right, if we're talking about four foot striking and super shoes and getting the full energy return from the heel, you could say that same exact question for literally any other shoe on the planet. 
So if you're already four foot striking and you're already not using the heel, it doesn't really matter, right? Like I feel like we're not comparing apples to apples here. It's your own mechanics there. And if the shoe feels good and it's responsive and it's resilient and it's responding the way you like it to, it's, it's fine. I feel like most shoes now are actually designed with a variety of foot strikes in mind. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. I'd say, hey, feels good. Go for it. All right. Ken Lily 17 asks, big toe is stiff, painful in the mornings, loosens up when running. What's the issue? Yeah, that's a loaded question. That could be that, that a could be a question. lot of things. That could be a whole lot of yeah. things. And I advise if, depending on how painful and how limiting this is, obviously go seek a local medical professional and go forward with the proper things there. A lot of PTs can work well with this. This is something that we see all the time. Um, the big toe is notorious for having some arthritic changes. I don't know how old you are. I don't know how many miles you have. I, I don't know anything about your demographic, but... One thing that we do see, especially with modern footwear and how stiff and these things are like, we aren't having great, this is a double word. We, we aren't having great, great toe extension, uh, great toe being your big toe. And usually when we're walking, we need about 60 degrees. Like when we're running, like that thing needs to be able to extend upwards in this direction for the list for the listeners. I am extending my fingers up from a flat position and there we go. Klein's got a foot model there. The the famous foot model. It's got to be able to go up. And so as you transition and you lever off of that gray toe when you're running, one of the great reasons why you can use that as a lever is because you have the range of motion to do it. And if you don't have the range of motion to do it, usually what's going to happen is you're going to start making some compensations elsewhere to get your foot to advance. You're going to start swiveling off of it or doing something weird. Um, that's beyond this question, but one of the reasons for why that could happen could be arthritic changes. Arthritis tends to be a little bit stiffer in the morning. You start walking, moving around. It starts to loosen up as you're going and you're running. Tendinitis and tendinosis type presentations are very similar as well, whether it's on the top or the bottom of the great toe. I don't know which location we're talking about. I'm going to assume it's the extensors. That's just me assuming, but um, that can also happen. So it's a little bit painful at the beginning. Once you start moving on it a little bit better, it warms up the pliability of it, the stretchiness of it starts to increase and it doesn't hurt you as much. Um, I would just get to the bottom of it, but chances are it's probably just a little stiff, you know, <laughs> it's either a little bit stiff or a little bit irritated. And in either case, you know, when you could do some gentle self mobilizations on that big toe and just play with the joint in the most literal sense, just move it around you can even stretch it just like a calf stretch where you just put the little great toe up on something. No need to go crazy on it. I mean, it sounds like it's already painful. Like just get some gentle movement. I think that's a pretty safe recommendation for pretty much anybody on the planet. So just get it moving. I don't know. Like it's hard to say what the issue is based on the question. So I, I, I won't answer what's the issue, but there could be a lot of reasons for why. And I think the root of this is probably get that thing moving a little bit and have some like isolated, you know, thoughts and concern for it. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And, and David hit that on the head is typically things that present like that, that we treat is things like, you know, a joint, a joint capsule issue. So arthritis is one of them. Arthritis really means irritation of the joint. So don't panic when you hear that. It just means it's a little annoyed. Right. And so you got to figure out, is it stiff? Do you need to get it moving better? Play with the joint. 
Um, the the tendinopathies, they, we call them tendinitis frequently, but they're usually more chronic. The tendinopathies also do the same thing. Both these things tend to feel really gross, not that great, but stiff and painful first thing in the morning. As you get moving, they tend to feel better, which is why appropriate movement is the best option. That said, not to make you panic, there are a couple other things that can cause this. So you might want to get checked out if just messing with the joint, if this thing doesn't, if it doesn't get better and it's continued to get worse, we really encourage you to get this checked out. All right. So bro, bro Biden, bro Biden. How does running with a handheld water bottle slash flask impact strike, cadence, etc., if anything? Bro Biden's an awesome handle. <laughs> that's that's too funny. Okay. Um, what was the question again? How, how does running with a handheld water bottle? Okay, got it. Yes. I mean, running with anything weighted will change how you're moving, right? Like, even something as... Simple as a watch change can change how you're running. Have you ever, if, if, I don't know if Klein has experienced this, but if you've ever changed watches, the weight of the watch can actually impact your stride a little bit. Like at first, and you're like, wow, this feels heavier. This feels so much lighter. I feel nimble. Yeah. And we're talking like, I mean, what, fractions of an ounce? An ounce? Like it's, we're not talking that much when weight. When you do something, when we do something, you do something like shoe stuff for us, we know we change it all the time. So it's not a big of a deal. But for like other things, if you change it, then you do and you do this every single day for years. You're like, whoa, like what? Yeah. What? What just happened? So yeah, totally and with you. One on of that. the big reasons when we take a look at it from a physics or a biomechanics standpoint, our hands are very distal to us, and mean, distal meaning that it's far away from our body. And so anytime something's far away from you, one of the analogies I'll use uh, for patients a lot of times, and this is normally referring to a head, but it applies to anything. If you're holding a bowling ball and you hold it to your chest and you just hold it right here, nice and tight, it's not going to feel that heavy. You take that same bowling ball and you move it further and further away from your body. Nothing else changes besides the fact that you move the bowling ball further out in front of you. All of a sudden, that bowling ball feels a lot heavier. And the reason is the lever arm. It's just literally further away from you. So more force or torque is required in order to maintain that thing up. And so where I'm going with this is when you add a water bottle, flask, anything in your hand for that matter, let's say you have a 16 ounce, um, like water bottle, you know, one of those ones that slide your hand in that you can hold on to. If you feel a little bit funky running, chances are it's because it is altering your stride a little bit. You're having to put a little bit more oomph into it in order to keep yourself natural. Um, with that said, I wouldn't worry about it too much unless you're doing it all the time. And if you are doing it all the time, I would probably just change the hands every once in a while. Uh, get used to having some asymmetry there. Uh, being someone that runs with a soft water flask all the time, I've gotten used to it. And usually for me, from a consistency standpoint, I almost always hold it in my left hand. And that's just because that works for me. I, I wear a naked belt and I have it tucked in my belt. I pull it off. I, you know, squeeze the nozzle, whatever, put it in my mouth, squeeze it, close it, I tuck it back in. For me, it's a relatively quick transition. And maybe for a 20 to 30 second period of time, my stride has changed slightly. But I'm able to normalize that pattern again pretty quickly. If you're out in a long trail race, I mean, I feel like you got other things to worry about if you're going 
hundred K, fifty K, hundred mile. Like just get the nutrition and like take care of yourself first. Let's focus on that and make sure you don't bonk or pass out on the trail. Like uh but for the sake of the question there though, like it does impact things and chances are you're probably putting a little bit more force into it. Your arm swing is gonna like your arm carry might slow a little bit, but it might increase in the actual swing, which also might be replicating in the legs to some degree as well, where cadence might slow down, but stride length might increase. That might change as well, though, depending on your terrain and how fast you're running and how hard you're trying to push or if you're just focused on the bottle. You know, it depends on a lot of experience and skill aspects as well to handling these types of things. But just for the sake of the question, it... uh it will impact it a little bit. Yeah, I don't think it's something that in, I would say don't worry so much about isn't going to impact you, but go, hey, if you're going to use this on a race or something, make sure you take time to get used to it. And it is a skill, right, to learn how to control an additional thing. And David's gotten really good at this, just the amount of time you've practiced to go, how do I take nutrition really, really well? And it's it's something you need. If you're going to do longer efforts, you need to take nutrition with you. It's really important. We've had some great sports dietitian episodes on here and it's really important for performance as well as some interesting stuff on mental function that yeah you got to do it so i think how much it's going to impact is going to be minor but i think the bigger key that david mentioned is practice it get used to it agreed all right moving on to some more questions here now we're going into yeah, the email long one yeah so we don't have any crazy handles we're just going off of first names but carol wherever you are her question is a decent sized one so i'm gonna i'm gonna try and run through this relatively quick master's runner too this is great yeah i i it's it's an awesome one honestly and i think we got the right guy to answer this on the other side of this but we got so i've been running for a very long time with custom orthotics i'm 63 and started running in the late 70s and started running with orthotics in the late 80s one of the reasons i use them is i have had a peroneal tendon tear repair peroneal nerve release on my right leg and ankle. They made my orthotics posted, so it takes pressure off the area, and it does help. My question is the orthotics I've been wearing have a carbon arch in them, but I like wearing carbon-plated shoes for racing. I'm running a full marathon, and I use the Endorphin Pros for racing and a few long runs or workouts. What are your thoughts on this? Is this too much carbon in one shoe? Are they canceling each other out? Would love your thoughts on this. I also have the Endorphin Speed, which I wear for tempo and workout days. So, Carol, it sounds like you've actually already been wearing the orthotic in the Endorphin Pros. And if you, I'd say if you haven't had any problems with this, it shouldn't be too much. Um, uh, carbon orthotic, and it sounds like it's only in the arch. So, I'm not, if it was full length, I might have some additional questions. But if only it's only in a partial part, I'm not worried. They're definitely not going to cancel each other out. It's just going to add more stiffness to the sole, right? Because you're combining two stiffer objects. You got the stiff plate, you got the stiff, so, the sole stiffness, right, in the Endorphin Pro with the rocker and the additional orthotic. If you've been wearing these custom orthotics for since the 80s, which is, you know, we're going on 40 plus years here, I would say don't necessarily change that. If you've put them in, if test it, right? If you've put them in the your carbon-plated shoes and you're fine, I would say don't worry about it. But if you put them in and you're wearing a carbon-plated shoe and you're like, this is not working for me, it might not be. It might be good to possibly change something else. And if you go and test a bunch of car plated shoes and you're like, hey, this is still becoming a problem consistently among all of these different stuff, it's probably not the shoes interfering with the – it's the shoes interacting with the plate. It's probably how you're responding to the combo 
of those two things. I hope I said that right. So then you might want to consider something like the Endorphin Speed or something that has some of those super foams, but maybe is a little less stiff. But how exactly the orthotic and the carbon arch is is working with the carbon plate, we don't know. I would say from a totally like out of left field comment, I would say I wouldn't worry about that too much as long as things are are working for you. I'm not worried about interact. It's definitely not going to cancel out. They will usually combine stiffness. Um, And the Endorphin Pro is great because it's not really going to push you one direction. If you have a super shoe that's potentially or any racing shoe that's pushing you the opposite way from where the post is going or like maybe pushing it too much, that's going to be different. But I'd say as long as it's the shoe seems to be working with orthotic and everything's good. I'd say enjoy, enjoy those endorphin pros and have a great fall marathon. David, what do you think? I couldn't have said it better myself. Sounds like you've practiced it. Sounds like it's working. Yeah. I'm not worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the full length ones are the more the more ones I would be more concerned of. But even then, like, hey, if it's working, you like a super stiff shoot? Great. All right. So next one from Brian is I'd really appreciate any advice, reflection, shoe choice guidance, specifically on the issue of road surfaces, cross slope, camber and how angle gradient places stress gradient places stresses key foot and leg issues the reason i ask is that i discovered the hard way how walking reasonably long stretches of mostly rural and suburban road with probably a three to four percent camber ooh, uh seems to really sl- tax my peroneal tendons and achilles especially on slopes and hills of course Aside from your from your excellent repeated stress on first assuring adequate fitness muscle tone. Yeah. So make sure the tissue is able to handle the stresses um, as job one for minimizing all potential running and walking injuries. It'd be great to get your views on how to best manage various road surfaces. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great question. In the beginning, was there that was a long question. Was was there a shoe yeah. specific part of that in the beginning that I missed, or was there, or is it? I don't think more that, so. Just yeah, managing was, the road surfaces. There, it was advice, mm-hmm. reflections, and shoe choice guidance on okay. that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the best way to manage it is to try and be in the middle. <laughs> to yeah. just try and avoid it. Um, that's a pretty sharp camber. A sharp camber is going to load you a little bit differently. With that said, different shoes are going to act on the camber differently as well. There's one shoe I could think of, two shoes I can think of very specifically for myself that I love running in a straight line and I despise running on cambers. One of those is the Mizuno Wave Rebellion Pro. I love that shoe. I I, I love that shoe, but I can't run cambered roads in that shoe. It destroys my ankles. The other one is the Adidas Audios Pro 2. The bias on it does not. It's great if I'm running on flat surfaces, but like if I'm running on a camber, the thing is horrible. I I can't do it. And it's no fault necessarily of the shoe per se. Like they designed the shoe for a purpose. The shoe does the purpose. It's just for that specific situation, it doesn't work well. And if you're able to avoid it, try to avoid it. I, I, I run on some cambered roads myself somewhat frequently and. I try to go against traffic. I try to be able to see what's coming. And if I'm able to kind of veer off into the middle where it's a little bit less cambered, I'm going to do so. Um, And I just try to make sure I don't take any unnecessary risks, of course. But I think if you're able to manage it um, that way, I would manage it that way. If you're able to find different routes that don't have any at all, 
I know that's a tough, that's a hard ask in this question. I don't know exactly what your roots look like and things around you, but if you're able to mitigate that in other areas, that could be very worth doing that. And I've rerouted runs before because of that reason myself. And Klein's pulling out the foot model. He's probably going to show you because when you're landing, so we think of like inversion and eversion of the foot and ankle. It's usually in and out as far as movement goes in an open kinetic position, just meaning your foot's not on the ground. It's an isolated movement. But when you are on the ground, that looks kind of like that teeter-totter I was talking about earlier with all the muscles that act as stirrups that help keep your foot and ankle from doing funny things. And they're going to be working overtime if you're going to be running on these cambered roads. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you had some irritation to some of the peroneal muscles or the Achilles or really any of the lower leg stabilizing muscles. You could have said the tibialis posterior in the Achilles. I would have thought the exact, I wouldn't be surprised either way. Uh, depending on how the camber is, what side of the road you're on, like it's going to get loaded differently. And so those lower leg muscles are going to be that much more active, including the calves, which is why your Achilles can also be sore. So I, if you're able to try and avoid it, I would try and avoid it. Um, just being conscious of the roads you're running on and how you're running on them. Sometimes you can't avoid it. And in those situations, stay alive. Don't get hit by a car, you know, like be safe. But if you're able to reroute yourself or let's say there's a dirt shoulder and the dirt shoulder isn't quite as uh, cambered run on the dirt shoulder, you know, like there's different, there's, there's ways around these things, but I get it. There's a lot of roads that are cambered here that I run through and I, I, to the best of my ability, I try to avoid those cambered sections. And sometimes you just can't. And sometimes like the best way to mitigate that if you can't, and you have to run on it is to at least try and run on it equally. <laughs> like you don't want to be like slamming the same exact side over and over again. So like, let's, but that's also, that's not exactly the safest decision. Cause that probably implies you're running on the opposite side of the road coming back and you can't see what's coming. So I don't, it's, it's kind of like, um, you lose if you don't, you lose if you do, you know, like not, not ideal, but, um, if you're able to avoid it, avoid it. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Camera roads are tough. And as David mentioned, because regardless of, so one foot's going to be on the top camera, the other part's going to be on the bottom. So you're going to get, so you're really either inverted or everted. So that means on the foot that's really everted, you're going to be stressing the posterior tibialis and you're going to rotate the Achilles and the Achilles does not like rotation either direct, like move it either direction excessively. If the other foot's going to be really inverted and that's going to really pull on the peroneal muscles, the Achilles also going to move out that direction as well. So that's just kind of how it goes. Um, muscles. So you're length, you're asking one group muscles to be, to work in an overly lengthened position. You're asking another one to work in a shortened position and vice versa. When you do that, it's harder for the muscles to work in those positions. Muscles and tendons, every, everything works best in the middle, right? When you take it to end ranges, if you haven't trained that, it can be a, it can put a little bit more stress there. So, yeah, you mentioned like you can try to train this in terms of if you had like a wobble board or like the mobile board and kind of see if you can control and work in those different directions. But I honestly, shoe choice wise, I'm not I can't really think of much that I would prefer except making sure it's at least decently not a stability shoe, but decently stable and not biased in one way. But honestly trying to even it out making sure you're going back on the opposite side so you expose your body to the opposite stress but if you can avoid that 
that's kind of the best. I've had a lot of patients. I'm not trying to create fear, by the way, but a lot of patients who have had like IT band stuff and post tip stuff right, from well, some of the Cambridge rows, especially in I, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Just yeah. change up the roots too. I mean, like like having yeah. a shoe rotation. If you're able to change your root, oh, up, that's like, a great. Yeah, you're still going to have a variety of stimuluses, and you're not going to be hitting the exact same thing every single time, every day, every step. You know, like that in itself is speaks large volumes. Um, but yeah, I think the best way to do it is to just mix it up. I mean, from a shoe standpoint, just a shoe that you trust, one that doesn't hurt when you're running it on the cambers, you know, um, there's not really any right or wrong answer to that. You know, a lot of these higher stack compliant soft shoes, I mean, on a camber, they don't do that great. At least for me, I, yeah, I got the same thing. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean go super low and firm either. Like just go run in something you feel comfortable in. And I think trying to modify the environment is arguably the best approach here. I would definitely agree. Man, that was a good episode. We had some great questions. So we really, really appreciate all the questions and hopefully got to we got to all of them. So if yours was not added, feel free to shoot it out on the next one and we will grab that. We will keep doing this because, hey, these are some great questions that we love trying to answer it and share. And remember, we're also learning. So we learn from this as well. Our final bit for this podcast is the end of episode question that we're bringing out. So I'm going to ask this of David first and he's going to ask it of me. If super shoes were a food, what would they be? And you are welcome to also answer this as well. Please answer it in the comments on wherever you're listening or watching this on. All right. Super shoes were a food. Now, this uh, this might be a little bit of a double entendre here, but this is um, – I'm going to say beets. Here's why beets. So when we take a look at beets, you know, people talk about beets juice, the deep nutrition that they have. People kind of throw it a little bit in that superfood category to some degree. Like they just throw beet juice in everything. They're also just fresh AF, you know, like Beats by Dre headphones, you know, like <laughs> it can go. You mean like the ones that are yeah, supposed, that are to, be supposed to be on my head? No, yeah, I, uh, yeah, but they died. died right before the show and I had to go and make uh, <laughs> contingency plans for this episode. Um, a big shout out and thank you to Amber for lending her <laughs> headphones to uh, David. Yes. Yes, she is awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna go with beets. Beets, they're uh, they're dense nutritious wise. They're all the rage in the juice world. A lot of I, I don't think people consider it in and of itself a superfood, but it's almost always paired with another quote unquote superfood. So uh, it's all the rage. It's all the fun. It's the healthy stuff. I feel like when you look at the super shoes in the food in the shoe world, you know everyone's talking about it. They all have. Everyone's got one. There's always these little components. Everything's going into it. I'm going to go with beets. I think that's a great answer. Right. Because I, I thought it was it. Is it? I don't know enough about this. I thought it was. I don't know. Um, I, my answer for this is going to be more personal. So I would say if super shoes were fr- food, they would be waffles. Because I love waffles. They're my favorite things. Um, the only issue is I can't eat them every day. If I ate them every day, I'd probably start getting sick and would feel terrible, which is why it's a, Hey, you know, it's a couple week treat when you're like rewarding yourself or you're going to like get after the day. That's when you enjoy the waffles, but it's not something I would want to eat every single day, every single meal. I think that's a great answer. I'd like, let it be known for one of these end of episode questions. I actually had something ready and was decent. Wasn't staring going, I don't know. Let me make something. Yeah. And just if, uh, if Ellenberger, if you're out there listening to this over at road trail run, 
please keep bringing the waffles content. I am a solid waffles follower. Not that it's actual edible waffles. His dog is named waffles. Slightly different. Yeah. Love the waffles content and keep it coming. All right. So thank you all for listening, watching, however you are consuming this media. We will obviously have keep going on this stuff and we want you to follow us wherever you take in information best be it spotify itunes you also got uploading this stuff on youtube we've always got the website we're uploading new reviews every single week we've got facebook instagram the linkedin that's still blowing up here tiktok which i just realized bach is still doing super awesome on and many other areas that you can consume this stuff on we have some cool content and some really cool guests coming up i would encourage you we just had some really cool episodes with um brooks we've had some great episodes with jeff and dustin recently although we dustin had to cut out short because lowe's messed with him but keep an eye out we've got some good stuff coming we appreciate you listening as always and we appreciate the questions keep them coming and we will talk with you next time